We have now begun the Green Sundays, the Sundays after Pentecost, and this is the longest season of the church year. It will last about 26 weeks until Advent. And the Green Sundays are primarily, uh, for the preacher at any rate, about Christian discipleship, its nature, its cost, and the ways and the means to speak about Christian discipleship. And it also means that the readings we're going to read cover the waterfront, but focus on certain of the biblical books for a fair period. So we're going to be reading for the next several weeks from Genesis, primarily about Abraham, and we're going to be reading through Romans, which I intend this Green Sunday to preach a lot about Romans. I always hesitate to do it because there's some who go, my, I am only getting about 5% of this when I hear it read to me. What does it mean? And then Matthew's Gospel, which is the Gospel we read during uh, year A of the Revised Common Lectionary. So I'm going to preach about all these readings today. The first one is from the book of Genesis, and it is a story about Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, and Ishmael. Abraham had a son by a slave woman named Hagar. And his wife, Sarah, was not able to have a baby for a long time. And in the story, at at a very advanced age, Abraham and Sarah are visited at the Oak of Mamre by three angels who announce to her that she's going to have a baby. And she laughs. And one of the angels say, why are you laughing? So she does get pregnant. She does have a baby. and She names the baby Isaac, which in Hebrew means God laughed or laughter. So in this scene, we have Ishmael playing with Isaac, who has just turned three. And Ishmael is 17. And Sarah sees them playing together, and she tells Abraham that Ishmael is going to have no share of his estate, and she wants him to send Hagar and Ishmael away. Now, you could read this text as being, she's just jealous, and she doesn't want Ishmael around anymore, or Hagar around anymore. But if you read it in the original, you'll discover that uh, what may be the case is that playing, the word in English we use, playing, uh, it comes from the same Hebrew root as Isaac, laughter. And it is translated in Hebrew as derisive laughter. So it's conceivable that Ishmael may have been saying to Isaac, teasing him about the fact that he is going to usurp his inheritance. In any case, we are reading, my friends, an ancient version of the tensions of the blended family. (laughs) And we all know a little bit about that around here, don't we? Right? So Abraham, like so many 
parents in a blended family feels himself caught in the middle. And God says to him, don't, I don't want you to worry about this. You need to send Ishmael and Hagar away. I will see that they're looked after uh, and you will uh, have, Isaac will have his inheritance and so forth. So he goes ahead and does it. And they give Hagar a big skin of water and he goes, she goes with Ishmael out into the desert. And it's not long till they run out of water. Ishmael hasn't had much to eat and he's thirsty. So she decides that she's going to put him on the roadside, sort of in the bush. And she's going to go away about a bow shot means within sight. Uh, hoping uh, that he'll get picked up by some wandering merchants or something, which was often the case in the ancient Near East. And, Isaac, uh, and Ishmael's getting fairly fragile. So God comes to her and says, uh, I'm going to look after you here. And uh, all of a sudden she turns and sees a well with water in it. And she can uh, have water and she moves forward. And it says at the end of the story that uh, she's become the head of the household now. And she finds a wife for Ishmael from Egypt. In the history of the ancient Near East, Ishmael will marry an Egyptian woman and he will have 12 sons and all of them will become the heads of the tribes from Assyria to Egypt in the story. Ishmael looms large in Islam because this is an explanation uh, to the people even then. How come there are Jews and Arabs? And this is the answer, or one of them, to this whole question. Now, this is a story, of course, about God providing, but it raises questions that I'm not going to attempt to answer today. But um, it's a question of if people receive God's <coughs> blessing, does it mean that other? it's a zero-sum game? Some get blessed, and some therefore have to not be blessed? Or is it uh, true that God's gracious embrace is for everybody? And how do we understand what that might mean? What does it mean when we speak of uh, people receiving the blessing of God? And what rights and responsibilities accompany the blessings of God? All of the world's great faith traditions, or most of them, have made the great mistake often for many centuries that uh, they have an exclusive relationship with God and other people do not. So the radical nature of suggesting that Paul does and in other places in the New Testament that the Gentiles now get to come in and the Gentiles are going to be treated with the same saving work of Jesus that the Jews are, that's very hard to take. The word for, in Greek for Gentile is ethne. I've told you this before, ethne. We, we get a word ethnic from that word in Greek. And you could also translate it loosely as those people. Those people get to come in now. And this is a story about how that all is going to get put together in this great kind of sprawling narrative 
that is the Bible. So in Romans today, Paul is speaking about a, a theme that will be central to his own theological outlook. Paul, of course, is the darling in Christianity for the Reformed tradition. And in the Reformed tradition, he is, uh, everybody believes, or many people do, that what it is that he said that was the great wake-up call for Christians was, we are justified by faith through grace. Justification by faith through grace. And without diminishing its power or importance, this passage is about something that biblical scholars call participation in Christ. And what he's affirming here is that through our baptism, through our membership in the body of Christ, we are grafted onto the body of Christ through our baptism. We now share in all of the blessings that Jesus himself has. We share in his resurrection. We participated in his death and resurrection. We participate in all of the promises of God just as he did. And as the result of that, we now need to understand something. And that is that we have been given many blessings by God through this process of participation. But it does not vest us only with special privileges. It also vests us with special responsibilities. And we always need in every age to be involved in a continuous conversation about what chosenness might mean. And we'll read a lot from Paul in the next few weeks, and he will be talking about themes like this and what it means to participate in the saving work of Christ. So we also become instruments of that saving work. What Jesus Christ is by nature, we come through adoption and grace at our baptism. And this is what he is speaking about. In Matthew's gospel, this is one of the gospels when I was a kid. I read this. I thought to myself, this simply can't be so. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Let me say something before I sort of interpret this about the situation on the ground. Christians were not actually persecuted uh, in large numbers in the first century AD. There were periodic uh, persecutions. But for the first century of Christianity, now from zero to 150, let's say, uh, the persecutions were, were, not, were, were irregular. Romans, the Roman government tolerated Christianity uh, pretty much. But there's some things going on that make the interpretation of this somewhat complex. 
One of them is that Matthew, the author of Matthew's gospel, um, by the way, the gospels are, have no authorship written on them. They are, uh, the tradition has told us that Matthew wrote this gospel, but they don't, they don't name the, the author of any of the gospels. In any case, Matthew, uh, a former rabbi, is now in a Christian synagogue, and this is about 85 A.D., that has become 80% Gentile. So the Jewish Christians are in the minority, and their great struggle is the internecine conflict that is taking place within this community about how we live with each other. And who's got to keep the law or not keep the law? Or what are we going to do about all of that? And how do we handle this? We have Jewish parents whose children are becoming Christians and vice versa. And we have a lot of confusion. And so to some degree, Jesus is talking about the situation on the ground there. And the church subsequently, when they start to get persecuted in earnest, thrown to the lions and so forth, in about 150 on, will begin to read this and say, you know, this has something to do with uh, how to hold the courage of our convictions in the midst of great persecution and conflict. But this also may be a word to families where there is disagreement For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. One might be able to understand that. I don't know. And one's foes will be members of one's own household. I never understood what that meant until I decided I wanted to go to seminary and become an Episcopal priest and my family went over the moon. And I bet there's at least one or two of you here who understand making a decision like that that was contrary to all that your family wanted you to do or had vested uh, themselves in what you were going to do. And when you went in a different direction, it was very difficult. Most of us who have been in the helping professions for any amount of time have, have had two issues occur. One has been a person who has made a decision to kick over the traces and uh, leave and not do what their family's expectations were of them and have gotten themselves in deep hot water. And there are others who have decided to stay, to cave, and to do what they thought was the right thing and have been miserable. So always remember that the same cause has paradoxical effects. And you have to have the courage of your own convictions and move in the direction you think God wants you to. You know, think what the right thing to do is. What should your vocation be? And I believe that Jesus is speaking about that uh, to some degree. How many times can we be forgiven? What does it look like to acknowledge Jesus before others? How can we support each other as members of the household of God? You know, uh, it's not uh, something that Episcopalians are particularly fond of. And depending on your point of view, that's either a good thing or not. But doing evangelism in 2014 is not easy. Because we live in a culture that has been inoculated against Christianity. 
You can speak of, of this country as a mission field, and it is, but it's not a mission field to people who've never heard of this. They've heard of it. Or they've been told stuff about it that is a caricature of what it is. And so now trying to work with that because it's in so deep is very difficult. And it requires uh, a certain amount of um, perseverance and figuring it out. Billy Graham who I'm not in complete agreement with by any stretch of the imagination, but I've always believed if you were going to point to an evangelist, he's the real deal. He's the real deal. And his form of evangelism is over. It is over. It doesn't work in 2014. You can't take somebody through three or four points and bring them to the signing of the yes, I believe Jesus is my savior and I say the prayer and I'm in. Bill Bright's Campus Crusade for Christ, over. And the important thing about that is, is that all of us need to be sensitive about the processes of God's work in people's lives. So don't be worried, anxious, or nervous if they're not going to sort of do it your way. But we have to be equally sure about what in the world it is we're talking about, right? And this has been a church that has always honored the human intellect, has told you you don't have to park your brains in the narthex before you can't, can't come here. It has assumed a certain level of literacy and competence in that regard. And so how do we uh, still do that without appearing to be elitists or turning people off? We need to find the ways to do that kind of thing. And Jesus today, in rather strong and hyperbolic terms, is speaking about having the courage of your convictions. That is an important thing. So this week, give thanks for some things that we've learned from these readings. That God remains faithful in Genesis. That we participate in Christ's saving work in Paul. And that we know that through the gospel, Jesus has said, we now are cooperators with him in the values of the kingdom of God. Or the other way to say it may be the reign of Christ. Amen.